0: You're listening to And the Plot Thickens, an Authors on the Air Radio Network podcast. Join your host, suspense and horror writer Jeff Crawford, as he explores the art of creating tension and mood with authors from a wide variety of genres. Find out more about Jeff and his books at authorjeffcrawford.com. And now, meet today's author guest.
1: Hey up and welcome to And the Plot Thickens, part of the Authors on the Air Global Network. I'm your host, Jeff Crawford. My producer is Carrie Schaefer and Kim Carpenter and Karen Biggerstaff-Patterson are helping me with technical assistance. Joining me today is Jonathan Mateberry. He's written more books than I can count and he has more awards than a trophy shop. His newest is titled Kagan the Damned. Jonathan, welcome so much to the show.
0: Thanks, Jeff, it's delightful
1: to be here. It's a a pleasure and a privilege and an honor to have you on. Um, On And the Plot Thickens, we discuss suspense, tension, darkness in writing, Um, which is necessary and I don't know if, except for maybe children's books, I don't know if there's a book written that doesn't require some amount of that somewhere um how soon in a by book the, by
0: the way even even a children's picture book like the pokey little puppy is he going to get that ball out from under the couch from not well there so you I
1: go there's them. no yeah. there's no getting away from it nope. um how soon in a in a book's creation do you begin to build on those uh, elements the the darkness the tension the suspense i'm sure it varies from book to book but do you hit the reader right between the eyes from right out of the gate or do you like to build a foundation and build it step by step
0: I'm a big believer in jumping in with both feet. Uh, I don't like a book that requires too much backstory before I get to the plot. I, I put characters in, usually in some degree of peril or tension, as soon as possible. Often with page one, uh, my new book, and you know, do a visual aid here. Kagan the Damned. I mean, it literally starts with him awakening to the conquest of the empire he is sworn to serve. So, I mean. From from the first page, he's embroiled in it. Anything we need to know about the character, you know, the stuff that a lot of writers might put up front so that they have an understanding of the character. I tend to t- parse that out so the reader gets to know it as the story unfolds rather than big info dumps. But I like I like putting the characters in peril, partly because that's going to tell us a lot about this character and why that character is the protagonist of the story. Um, and that that's something that's sometimes hard to to determine when you get a, a novel that opens with a number of different characters interacting yes you'll be able to see a point of view character but you don't know which one's going to really carry the burden of the of the story with them and i want to be able to tell that right from the jump and also it's what i what it's the kind of books i like to read i love stories that start with a bang so you know, I've always read, I've always been drawn to those types of stories, and it's not surprising that in the 40-some novels I've written, and a lot of the short stories I've done, it starts with things in, definitely in motion, and often in motion and in real threat.
1: Great, thank you. That is extremely specifically informative. Um, do mysteries within mysteries catch you by surprise? when you're writing a book and you're placing the shadows here and there in the right places for the reader, um, do you ever realize something has developed that you weren't planning on or expecting?
0: Uh, in, in my own writing or in the books I read? Because the answer is slightly different.
1: Um, uh, both. Well, I'll
0: start with books I read. Um, one of the things about being a professional writer, I mean, this is my day job, I do it every single day, um, is that we are we get used to the, the conventions and thought process of how a story of this type is told. So we often catch up to, we look for the clues, we can spot them, even if they're subtle, because we're used to making, to, to leaving clues and making them subtle, we're make, or ranging between really subtle and pretty overt. And, you know, we can usually follow the, the, the thinking of the writer to the point where we we solve the, the mystery before the end. Um, and, and that gets, I mean, it's both satisfying because, you know, we, we feel kind of smug about, hey, I, we figured that out. But also it's frustrating because sometimes that's the end of the story and there's no twist that deepens the story. So when I write a story, I do like, you know, it's one of the reasons I plot a story out completely. I don't write from the seat of my pants. I actually plot the whole thing out. I want to know that I can I can build in uh, allegory and metaphor. I can build in motif. I can I can foreshadow. I can lay all the clues that will bring the reader to a certain point. And I want the reader to be to do that because if they're trying to solve it, they are uh, my collaborator, my co-conspirator in actually telling that story. And I you know good writing, and I'm I always aspire to try to be a good writer. Good writing invites the reader to be your companion on the journey, your co-pile. Um, So you lay the clues and want them to follow. However, you also want to uh, reward them for their diligence. Um, so by the time they've solved a central mystery, perhaps even the central mystery, you then switch it and say, okay, th- you know, you figure that out. But it turns out there's a level deeper. Um, and it, that's where a lot of novels... That, are, that unfold like mysteries turn into thrillers in the last acts because the, the hero has figured something out and now the problem gets bigger than just figuring it out. And now he's got to deal with the consequences of knowing or, be, or having reached a certain point of involvement and that, that hypes up the danger and makes it harder for the, the reader to then predict how the book's going to end. So you have that satisfying mystery that the reader can follow and then you have that thriller moment where the readers just want to buckle up and get breathless as you take them to the conclusion. Um, so it, it, it is a little of both. And also along the way, you have mystery thriller and you also have suspense. The suspense element is to make sure that you focus on character rather than events. The character, it's the character's experience as the events are unfolding around him or her, so that. The suspense part is is being in the moment with them. The actual five senses, the act, uh, the, the internal tensions that they're feeling, the, the the range of emotions that you're hoping to engender within the reader as you as they read what you've written. You want to be in that moment. Um, and a lot of the the books I most love are the ones that are both that are actually suspense, mystery, and thriller all in the same package. That, to me is 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 a satisfying piece of writing. And as a reader, it's a satisfying uh, read because I get all of my various um, reader needs satisfied by these different you know story elements.
1: Well, that sort of that sort of leads me into um, what I wanted to speak about next. and 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 all of that makes sense. Um, but it leads me into this. Uh, uh, Many things go into building suspense, tension, whatever, whatever you want to call that, Uh, whether it's setting or character nature or time or events. Do you have a favorite or a thing that you, it's your go-to thing for, for building on this? Is it, is it the character? Is it the, the damp creepy rock wall is it the the owl that won't shut up what is it is is there a go-to thing for you that's going to drive the reader crazy
0: for me it's always about the character experience within the setting so if there is for example a a, an owl hooting somewhere that's going to trigger something some kind of reaction or memory or something within that character a fear that maybe you know they've, they've been carrying since childhood or a a bit of PTSD from some trauma they've experienced. So if they experience some anomalous or or a strange moment within the story, I don't want to just focus on the owl hooting. It's what do I hear, if I'm the character, what does that hoot mean to me? You know, like if they're, for example, you could have a character sitting alone, reading a book in a cabin in the woods, right? Owl hooting outside is not unusual unless the owl is right outside the window. And he looks and he can see the owl looking at him as it's hooting. So suddenly now you're building a personal relationship with the stimulus. The characters reacting. And then if he tries to go back to read the book and he hears the owl hooting and looks back, but the owl's not in the, in the tree outside the window. But he still, hear, still hears the hoot at the same level of sound, which means that it sounds like it's in that tree still, but it's not there. You know, so then you start building that little bit of weirdness into the story, like, okay, it's no longer just an owl hooting. The owl and the, re- uh, the character have, have, have had a relationship, even if it's by looking at each other, and now there's a, a deeper mystery that makes it so strange the character has to get out of that chair and do something, go look or whatever. That's the kind of story I like to, to write and like to build, and, you know, again, it's, it's what I like to read. There's some of the writers who have done that sort of thing so well... James Lee Burke, the mystery writer, who often puts a a little bit of of supernatural in his stories, just a hint of it. Um, A lot of Joe Lansdale stuff where it's so much in the mind of the character. He wrote one story about a guy going to the top of a tower in in a a college with a sniper rifle. We're in that moment with that character. Um, And we even start understanding and even empathizing with, to a degree, his motivations for being there. You know, that's the kind of writing that I find really exciting when even if something bizarre is happening that is outside of our personal experience, the writer has crafted the scene uh, well enough, you know, tying the five senses in, tying, you know, whatever past damage or or memories you have um, into the way the character acts. Each of those things allows a potential door in for the reader to become the character. Or for the character to be a true proxy for the reader and the, the reader's in the moment there. That's the thing I like working toward. You know, it's it's the it's the 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 technique that I find most uh exciting to write. And sometimes I mean it's a lot slower to write that than it is a fight scene. Fight scene, you know, it's it's even if it's it's an involved fight scene and I love writing fight scenes. I've you know had a lot of experience with that in the real world as well as in fiction. But suspense scenes, when you're really getting deep inside the character's reactions and point of view, to me, that's where a book comes completely alive. Uh, Probably Uh, the best example of that is The Haunting of Hill House by Charlie Jackson. Absolutely, and and she doesn't, she did not tell the reader everything they needed to know so that even even though the, the main character is an unreliable narrator, we are compelled to follow her journey and to try to figure out what's going on, even though she may not be capable of telling us enough information to make a firm decision. That's freaking brilliant. Absolutely brilliant.
1: Jack catching did some of the same stuff. Right. Well, I, I agree completely. It's, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to bring this up for no particular reason. I just wasn't going to, but is it a, is it a, case most of the time, if it's done correctly, where less is more?
0: It depends. Like Stephen King uses it really well. He's more uh, about suspense than about payoff. So he he can go a thousand pages, you know, (laughs) with suspense. It depends on the level of the writer, often how many characters are involved. Like the novel It has a really huge backstory to it you know flashback to when they were kids so much so that when they made the movies they actually took the backstory and made a whole movie out of it and the rest you know the framing story became the second film but that entire thing with all of those complicated scenes was was suspense he made sure that every possible um nervous reaction a reader might have was triggered by something that happened he didn't let up very much he did the same in probably the best example of it is the, is the nove- novella Um, The Mist, because you have a whole bunch of characters, and so you have shifting points of view. You keep returning to the primary point of view, but because of the shifting points of view, it allows other characters to experience things the main character doesn't, and that actually increases our concern for the threat level of the main character and his son, because other people are seeing things that are dangerous he might not yet know about. That becomes really fun. So it can be a longer thing, it can be really big, or it can be a single moment or a scene. Um, I'll give you an example of a, of, of, of a really short version of this, again, using Stephen King. In Salem's Lot, one of my favorite novels, he had um, the servant of the vampire who was trying to bring the vampire in, apparently it was a ritual involved to bring the vampire to the town, he had kidnapped a child, and he's about to sacrifice the child, and you know, we're you know as the reader, I'm expecting this to get really bloody and gruesome because Stephen King can can go there, right? And yet, the way he ended that scene, as he's raising the child, the last line was, "It became unspeakable," and that's the end of the chapter. We never get details, but in my mind, I created a horrible scenario of what happened next, as did most of the other readers who who read that book, who probably paused before they went to the next chapter, because We need to figure out what that exactly means or deal with it. And that's a beautiful moment of quick suspense with a lingering effect. So it it can be of all lengths, all complexities. But, you know, so either you're going from, you know, what the reader is feeling in the moment because of what the character is feeling in the moment or what the reader is left with, kind of stuck with, that they have to resolve in their own head, which means they're walking around thinking about it. So they're extending it, even though the scene was short. So it has different forms.
1: Okay. Well, well, that, that, you know, it's almost like it's descriptive because that goes right in to uh, what I was going to ask next. And which is easier or more enjoyable for you to w- write or work with, the fear of the known or the fear of the unknown? Uh,
0: mm, really, it, it's a tough one for me to answer because... I actually blend the two. Like, for example, in my first three novels, The Ghost Road Blues, Dead Man's Song, and Bad Moon Rising, the Pine Deep Trilogy, you know, once the characters realize they're up against vampires, they think it's fear of the known. They know what a vampire is. The problem is they only know about vampires from books and movies. My vampires are based on the folkloric versions of those monsters. And most people do not know the difference between, you know, say, Count Dracula and... Every, you know, vampires in Peru, in in, in Nepal, in, in uh, Poland, wherever, they're all different. Their powers and vulnerabilities are different. So if you're going to pull out a cross against a vampire, you know, because that's what you've read, you know, you think this, I know, this will stop a vampire, except that nowhere in folklore does a cross stop a vampire, it's only since the, movie, since the book Dracula did holy objects stop vampires. Nowhere in world folklore does, does it. Nowhere in world folklore does a vampire need to ask, you know, to get invited before it can enter. Again, Bram Stoker, he did that because when Dracula got to England, if he didn't have something to limit him, he'd just kill everybody, It'd be a very short novel. Um, nowhere in folklore is is a vampire. I'm sorry, there's one, ex- one exception. Uh, vampires are generally not killed by a stake through the heart. Uh, that was something that was, I mean, even in Dracula, Dracula was not staked. He was killed by a Kukri knife and a Bowie knife people don't remember that. Yep, read the last chapters of Dracula. He was, he was stabbed to death. Um, so a lot of what we know from vampire folklore is actually what we know from Hollywood. And in my novel, I wanted the, that moment when people realize that they think they know how to fight this, but they don't. They really don't because they are, are going on false information, fictional information. You know, we novels can invent anything we want. Um, but if you're if you're up against say a vampire um, like you you chief from uh, uh, Eastern Europe and, and so on, you pull out a cross or you try to douse it with holy water, it's going to kill you, and that makes <laughs> it that changes the dynamic within the story because there's a high attrition rate once characters start failing at being able to stop something they think is relatively easy to stop once they've diagnosed what kind of monster it is. And um, that creates a whole new level of of suspense, because now the characters, having failed, are like, well, shit, what do we know? Do we know enough? Do we know anything? And it makes it a harder problem for them to solve. And that was so much fun to build into my novels.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what you're doing is you're taking institutional memory and throwing it out the window and using it against them and turning it into an old crap moment. You know, they've got to start back over at square one.
0: Yeah, I mean the, the this is the, the the structure based on what we're talking earlier, the readers will have probably guessed that they're vampires before any of the main characters realize. But then we we turn the tables up, but they're not the vampires we know how to fight. And well, that's, that well, that's
1: the trick. That's yeah, the, that's the trick. trick. I've, I've done that at a time or two in mine, I don't care that you see the big picture. I need to know that you've missed this part down in the corner because yep. this is what's going to haunt you later. Yep. So I, I, <laughs> I, that's great. I Besides it, besides that being informative, I learned a lot more about vampires in the last four minutes than I knew in my entire life. Yeah, the,
0: point <laughs> is, uh, the reason, one of the reasons I wrote my first novel, because I had been a nonfiction writer my whole life. I had written a nonfiction book about supernatural folklore about vampires, werewolves and other supernatural predators around the world throughout history. And it was a great learning experience for me. I had learned some of it as a kid. My grandmother was a wonderfully creepy old lady. If you know the character Luna Lovegood from Harry Potter, the little girl that believes oh, yeah. in everything, make her an 80 year old lady, that's my grandmother. She believed in everything. <laughs> um, and taught me all about these folkloric monsters long before I saw the old Universal or Hammer films growing up. And um, But she also encouraged me to read the Anthropology and the Science because people believed something for a reason what did they believe so she think she thought some was supernatural and some was just science we hadn't quite understood yet um, and that allowed me to well that that intrigued me enough to want to write a novel about those kind of monsters and that launched
1: my fiction career okay that's that's great um, maybe every writer should have a creepy grandma. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're also born on a Halloween, which makes her even cooler.
1: Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> well that's just a given. Um, if there was one word that you would use to describe how you want the reader to feel before turning each page, what is it, and how do you get the writer to feel that or the reader to feel that feeling?
0: Uncertain i i want I don't want them to be completely surprised. I want them to be uncertain. I want them to think they are figuring it out. But I keep changing the rules on them as they go. So I like that uncertainty. Uncertainty leads to uh unease. And I want that. So uncertainty is where I'm going.
1: Good deal. Good deal. I I, I, I could do this for two more hours, you but but question. I'm not allowed to. <laughs> I'm not allowed to. So before we before we get out loud of here tell everyone what your latest and hottest iron in the fire is ah, cool. and um and where they should be looking how they can find you and uh it and what they should be looking for
0: well, well i've written a whole bunch of novels i've written horror science fiction fantasy thrillers my f- this keg the damned is my first epic fantasy kind of like a game of thrones meets the witcher um i had a lot of fun with this I got a great cover quote from Michael Moorcock, one of my heroes growing up. I read all of his Elric and Eternal Champion novels. It is a big, dark, complex story about the return of magic uh, in a world where it has it has been exterminated. And now it's being brought back and all the positive and negative repercussions. It's the first of a trilogy, second book, uh, Son of the Poison Rose will be out in January. And then it'll wrap with uh, Dragon in Winter uh, the following year. I had more fun doing that book than I've had doing any of the other books. I've written 45 novels so far. That was actually my favorite, without it, without a doubt. And the audiobook read by Ray Porter, who you know just won audiobook Reader of the Year last year for his uh, Project Hail Mary, Andy Weir's novel. Um, he's he's freaking amazing for this. As far as finding me online, I'm easy to find as long as you spell my last name right. People want to spell it M-A-Y-B-E-R-Y, but it's M-A-B. It's still pronounced Mayberry, but no Y in the middle. Jonathan Mayberry on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, um, uh, you name it. I'm, I'm all over the social media. I have a weekly Ask Me Anything at, at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern time. I'm sorry, yeah, 4, 4 p.m. Pacific time every Thursday, um, and uh, I, you know, I love interacting with readers and
1: fans and my fellow uh, book geeks. So, you know, find me and hang out. Let's just have some fun. That's fantastic. Fantastic. And, um, I hope you'll uh, agree to come back when the second book releases. And we'll talk a little bit about that.
0: Anytime you want
1: you ask great good questions
0: and you don't ask the questions that I get asked a lot, which is great. So I'd definitely love to come back and have some more chats with you, Jeff.
1: Yep. Anytime you want to buddy. Um, You've been listening to a wonderful conversation with the talented Jonathan Mayberry, and, uh, and I hope uh, I can remind him when the book comes out that he agreed to come back and do another show. Uh-huh. I'm your host, Jeff Crawford, and this has been And The Plot Thickens, part of the Authors on the Air Global Network. Please join us again next time for another interesting discussion. Read a book, tell everyone you read the book, because reviews matter. Find me on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, www.authorjeffcrawford.com. On a personal note, AM, hang in there tough buddy, we're pulling for you. Um, Jonathan, thanks so much for being on.
0: My pleasure, Jeff, thanks.